preaching series in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. There are two letters in the New Testament to this church. And um, we're in chapter 4. David started with chapter 4 last week and we're halfway through. So we'll pick it up at um, verse 13. Um, You've probably gathered that this is um, a church that Paul had such great affection for. He'd planted the church, he'd laid good foundations and he was getting news that these people were growing in their faith and he wanted to encourage them. He'd love to have been with them but um, a letter would have to suffice. And so he writes to encourage them. And um, last week when David was preaching, um, he talked about Paul's encouragement to live lives pleasing to God. And part of that was to abstain from sexual immorality, that which was rife in that uh, society in those days. And it's a challenge for us today in various ways. What we watch, as David mentioned last week, it's still a challenge for us today. Also, he encouraged them, Paul did, to um, excel in love for one another so that their lives would be a testimony to God's grace to outsiders, to people who weren't Christians. And as David mentioned last week, um, Steve had given the title, Living Out Loud. Our lives should be um, a testimony to the gospel that we proclaim. What's the motivation for um, living lives, holy lives, perhaps sacrificial lives, uh, deny ourselves some of the things that um, other people find pleasure in. Well, firstly, it's our proper response to what God has done for us. God, in sending Christ to be our saviour at an immense cost, then that requires a response from us. And you probably know the beginning of Romans chapter, uh, chapter 12 where Paul says in view of God's mercy and he's been telling you all about God's mercy up to that point in view of God's mercy present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual act of worship and David reminded us last week that worship is more than us just coming singing songs here on a Sunday. It's even more um, than our personal and private devotions. It's our response to God's commands, God's will in our lives. And so when um, we are challenged to either obey God uh, or just to follow our passions or whatever and we choose to obey God, that's worship. So it's with our lives that we, we worship God. But secondly, um, the other important motivation that we're considering today is Jesus is coming back. Right? And um, this letter is full of that. But what will he find when he does? Jesus is coming back. So let's, let's read that passage from... Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. That you not grieve as others do, who 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For you for dying. Right, falling asleep. We declare to you a word from the Lord that we are we not try this first. Yeah, that's it. We're there. It's it. Thank you. Maybe it was the law. We should have gone for Duracell. <laughs> okay. Where was I? <laughs> for this we de- for this we declare. But st- start the scripture again. Okay. All right. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the hope and the promise uh, in the scriptures. And it was Paul's desire that his readers uh, should be encouraged. And we ask you, Lord, that we will be encouraged this morning. But also, Lord, that we will be challenged. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed when you're looking forward to a very special event, perhaps one of the most special would be when you're looking forward to getting married. And, or it might be a special holiday. And um, all your decisions seem to relate to that. It, it changes your priorities. And it's always there in the background. And, and if I do this, how will it affect what's, what I'm looking forward to in the future? On a kind of minor level, when I'm about to go on holiday, perhaps the week before, and uh, there's a number of things that you need to tidy up, aren't there, when, when you go on holiday? Bits of admin to do. And I actually find they are easier to do because I've got this event coming up. If I get this done now, if I do it today, I've, I've put it off, but I'm going to do it today because I'm going on holiday. And I believe there should be something of that expectation because Jesus is coming back. Um, This morning we're not going to debate the various theories about what the Bible teaches concerning the end times. There will be an end time. There will be a time when God wraps up uh, this world as we know it and the universe and create the new heavens 
and a new earth. We're not going to go into a lot of detail about that this morning. And sadly, some Christians have fallen out over the details relating to sequence and timing. But for Paul, the overwhelming truth and the abiding hope for Christians was that Jesus, who had died for their sins, who was buried, who was raised to life, who ascended to the Father, was coming back. And not coming back as a suffering servant, as he did, giving his life for the world. Um, and he even said himself that he hadn't come to judge the world, but to save it. But he is coming back uh, to be God's awesome judge when God judges this world. And for most people, it will be the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus is coming back this time to implement God's judgment. Knowledge of this should be a fearful warning to those who have rejected God and his son Jesus. They've been offered the love of God through Jesus and rejected it. But it's a joyful expectation for those who have received Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And that's what Paul is talking about in this passage. And clearly in establishing this church and laying a good foundation of doctrine, he will have included the return of Jesus as a cornerstone uh, for hope for these believers uh, for the future. And consequently, the fact of Jesus' return is not in question with these believers. No one's questioning that. And there was a feeling that this may even be soon. Even You can sense that in some of the things that Paul says here in this passage, even in their lifetime. And although Jesus and the apostles repeatedly um, tell us that we're not going to know when this will be, it will be like a thief in the night, something you don't expect. Nevertheless, there may be scriptures that could lead people to think that it would be in their lifetime, even from Jesus himself. You remember he's talking to his disciples who were concerned about the future. And in John 14, verses 1 to 3, he says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I think the disciples could be forgiven for thinking that could be in their lifetime, couldn't it? And then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is talking about um, the, the, the things to come and um, answering some questions of the disciples. And he tells them that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit and that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then it goes on, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. They might have thought this could be in our lifetime, wouldn't they? 
And maybe it was this assumption of the imminent return of Christ that raised the concerns among the Thessalonians that Paul is addressing here. It's important because he doesn't want them to be uninformed. He doesn't want them to speculate. So the big issue is, have our loved ones missed the boat? Our loved ones who've died, have, have they missed it? Have they missed what, this great return of Jesus? So it, that's not in question, but, and, and in spite of the cataclysmic events surrounding his return, which you can read about in various parts of the New Testament, he is specifically coming back for those who belong to him. And Paul mentions this four more times in this letter. I'll just read them to you. Verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this anticipation, waiting for Jesus to return. Chapter 2 and verse 19. <clears throat> for what is our hope or our joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It is, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And then in chapter 3 verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then chapter 5 and uh, verse 2. 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's on Paul's mind, it's in the background of all that he uh, is teaching people. Now of course the destination of loved ones or friends who have died um, is naturally of concern for those who are left to grieve and mourn. And of course, unless you're of the opinion that there's nothing when you die, expressed in the sentiment, once you're dead, you're dead, then perhaps the majority of people believe there must be something beyond this life and assume or want to believe that their loved ones are now in a better place. That's what you tend to feel, isn't it, when people... Uh, lose their loved ones or friends. They want to believe that they are now in a better place. And particularly if the departed has suffered badly in this life, it's easy to go along with the thought that although their passing is sad, at least they are now at rest. This may be some of the thinking behind euthanasia. Or perhaps if we're talking to children, some people might say, well, Nan's gone to be with the angels, or Nan's gone to be with Grandad. Um, some people at funerals read poems about flowers or butterflies. But whilst I completely understand the desire to soften the blow and find some consolation on the day, 
It is pure fantasy. It's pure speculation. It is God and God alone who will determine people's destiny. And Paul had had a word from the Lord. Verse 15, he tells us that. And he doesn't want his friends to be uninformed. For those in Christ, the future is full of hope. No doubt we've, we've all been to a number of funerals. Um, some for believers and some for people who were not believers. Did you sense the difference at those funerals? Did you sense there was the difference? A funeral for an unbeliever, although it may be strong on remembering and celebrating their life with a few humorous anecdotes to lighten the occasion, beyond that it's often stark and bleak. And even though people try hard, it's devoid of any hope or genuine assurance of life beyond. As people stand there in shared grief, the world has no answer to mitigate that grief. The world has no answer to it at all. In contrast, the funeral of a believer, whilst it may include the same kind of celebration of their life, it's also joyously full of hope and assurance that the loved one is now in the presence uh, of the Lord Jesus. Not based on wishful thinking, but on the promises of the Lord and the confirming words uh, of the apostles. It may surprise you to know that in spite of the evolutionist claim that death is essential for the advancement of life, that is, for, in order for natural selection and survival of the fittest, death is not natural to man. It was not there at the beginning. It became part of man's experience because of sin. You remember there in, in the first book in the Bible in Genesis where we have the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve there. God said you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you do, on that day you will die. And they disobeyed. And although they didn't die immediately, death came to them which was then passed on to all men. It spread to all. Hence death really is an unwelcome intrusion and we fight against it with all our powers. But in the end we have to bow to its inevitability and seeming futility. But Christ has overcome the powers of death and grants eternal life to all who will put their trust in him. Jesus has overcome. The Bible calls death the last enemy. Jesus has overcome the last enemy. In John 11, Jesus arrives um, at the home of his friend Lazarus, who had died already in the tomb. But he says this to Mary, John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? And of course, after that, he actually raised Lazarus from the dead, only to die again. That wasn't the resurrection he was talking about. And in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we see that in the new heavens and the new earth, Christ and his people united and death will be no more. Now of course, um, when someone dies, there is grieving. 
um, even for Christians. But Paul says it's different. It's not like those who have no hope. We have hope and it makes a difference. Verse 13. Just a couple of weeks ago, Joe and I attended the funeral of Louise Harding. Some of you may know or have known Louise. She used to be at New Life Church with us in Whitstable and they then moved as a family to City Church, Canterbury. Just 49 and succumbed to cancer after a, you know, a, a magnificent fight, but nevertheless, she succumbed. And, um, you know, just a tragic loss for her family and friends. But the service was not gloomy, by any means. It was a celebration of her life, but also a celebration of her faith, and the faith of most of those who had gathered there. The short service ended with the song, There's a Place Where the Streets Shine. I'll read you a bit of it. This is how the service ended. There's a place where the streets shine with the glory of the Lamb. There's a way we can go there. We can live there beyond time because of you. And that's because of Jesus. No more pain. No more sadness. No more suffering. No more tears. No more sin. No more sickness. No injustice. No more death because of you. There is joy everlasting. There is gladness. There is peace. There is wine ever flowing. There's a wedding. There's a feast because of you. All our sins are washed away and we can live forever. Now we have this hope because of you. And we'll see you face to face and we will dance together in the city of our God because of you. So it's so different when it's the funeral of a believer. So back to the issue that Paul is addressing. He wants to make it clear that those who have died in the Lord and by that he means those who have already accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour. For those who die in the Lord, they are secure in the Lord. And interestingly, they'll be first in the queue when Jesus returns. It says the dead in Christ will rise first. So by no means are they forgotten. And Paul reinforces the certainty of this by reminding his readers in verse 14 that all of this is totally dependent on the resurrection of Jesus. His rationale for this is spelt out in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, starting at verse 17. It's people saying, May, is there really a resurrection? I'm not sure there's a resurrection. And he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied why is that because our belief in Jesus has meant that perhaps we've made sacrifices we've changed our lifestyle we've done all sorts of things because of that and if it's not true, then we've wasted our time. We should be pitied. But he goes on, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
It's very important, this term, first fruits. Um, in those days, when a farmer sowed a field, maybe it was wheat, when the first ears appeared, um, he would gather those up and probably go and go and give thanks for the harvest that was to be. They were the first fruits. Now, they weren't um, stooks of, or stalks of, of wheat or barley or whatever um, prepared in, in a greenhouse. They were in the field, the same field. And he'd taken them as the first fruits. And the point about it is that our resurrection is, is part of the same resurrection as Jesus. He was the first fruits, and we are the harvest. We will be the harvest. It's the same harvest that Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead. What about the manner of Jesus coming? There's a cry, there's a voice of the archangel, there's a sound of a trumpet. What's all this about? Well, actually, this is the defining um, scripture for Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, how many of you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses on your doorstep? That's good. Yeah. It's good. it's good to be able to give your testimony to them. And in fact, you probably find that we have much that we agree with in what they say. But like other heretical sects, um, they always make less of Jesus than the Bible teaches. That would be true of any so-called Christian sect or perhaps on the, on the fringes, they always make less. And the major difference between them and genuine Christians is they believe that Jesus is not God, uh, but the created being, and claim that he and the archangel Michael are one and the same. I only discovered this a few years ago, that that's what they teach. Um, and they base this belief on this passage, verse 16. They claim that the voice of an archangel is the voice of a descending Lord, one and the same. And um, of course, Michael's not mentioned here, but the only archangel that's mentioned in the Bible is Michael. So I guess that's why they've attached his name to this. But what we need to recognise here is that what is described here is the victorious return of the Lord of glory with all the pomp and triumph of heaven. Kings in those days, when they had um, uh, had a, a, an amazing victory um, on their way back to the city with all their troops and all their entourage, they would send heralds in front of them to announce the victory to the people who were waiting so that they would be ready to celebrate when the king arrived. And the same is here. We have the archangel will herald the arrival of the Son of God. So what a prospect, what a future, to be always with the Lord. And Paul says to encourage one another with these words. For Christians, and as anybody, times may be hard at times. And in fact, for Christians, times could be even more hard. Because Jesus told us that we would be persecuted, that in the world we would have tribulation, and there are certainly thousands of Christians around the world at the moment who are facing terrible persecution, extreme persecution. And they need, as we need, to hear this kind of encouragement. Jesus is coming back, coming back again. He's coming for his own. So for believers, this is wonderful news. It's full of 
certainty, hope and assurance. It's grounded in the word of God and is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus himself. But as I've hinted, um, it's just one feature of what we'll do, God will do at the end of the age. God will judge the world in righteousness, which includes people who have ever lived, uh, who will be raised not to eternal life to live with Jesus, but to judgment and punishment. Listen to what Paul says in his next letter, uh, which for me is the next page on, his second letter to the Thessalonians, partway through verse 7. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marvelled at among all who believed because of our testimony to you was believed. So, for some people um, it's not going to be a joyous occasion when Jesus returns. Because sin and rebellion, we are God's enemies. Paul says to the Ephesians, we are by nature objects of wrath. What that means is, it's not just of the things that we do that make us God's enemy, but by nature, we are against God. We are God's enemies by nature, which we inherited uh, from Adam. We are by nature objects of wrath. And because God is righteous, he must punish sin. If he didn't punish sin, he would not be righteous. You know, even in our own experience, when people commit crimes, most of us believe that they should be caught and punished, don't we? We believe that, that people should not get away uh, with their crimes. And if they get away with it, we are indignant. Sometimes we... We see on the television people coming out of court um, and, and they're indignant because they say um, this man that we've just seen in court um, killed our son as a drink driver and uh, he's only got two years. And they say that's not just. We haven't got justice. And there are many people that you see on the news who claim that they haven't got justice. But let me tell you that um, those that we think maybe have got away with it won't get away with it because there's one day they will face God and account for their crimes and much else. Uh, so it, in a sense, isn't it good that they won't get away with it? You think that's good? Ultimately, they won't get away with it. But hold on, neither will we. We won't get away with it either. For God declares that we've all sinned and come short of his glory. And unless we run to Jesus now and receive his mercy and forgiveness, we will face a terrible future when Jesus comes again. We should not be rejoicing that Jesus is coming again, but trembling with fear that we will have to face judgment and the wrath of God, whether we are dead or alive. That's a fact. So, 
We are urged to run to Jesus now. Now you may be thinking, well, the early believers thought Jesus was coming in their lifetime and he didn't. It's now 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't come. Perhaps he's not coming. Perhaps we shouldn't worry about it. Perhaps we shouldn't be concerned. Well, Peter addresses this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Jesus is not late in coming. It is the mercy of God that is giving people time to repent. And maybe that applies to you. Maybe God has been giving you time to repent. But he goes on. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we should not delay. I don't know how you visualise things, but if you think about the coming of Jesus, I don't know, I kind of think of history as a big long road. And you could, you could think, looking ahead, oh, there's Jesus somewhere, miles up there, who's one day going to come back. But somebody, quite speculatively really, but explained it like this, which I thought was quite helpful, that actually Jesus is alongside. Um, we don't see him, we don't see him, but he's alongside us, travelling with us, and at any time, he can break into history. It's not like, well, we've got to wait till we reach this end here. No, any time, Jesus can break into history and come back for those who belong to him. So, just closing then, what, for, for believers, what is our motivation? What should we do? It? What should we be doing in relation to the coming of the Lord? Because it will be such a joyful reunion with Christ and fellow believers, a fulfilment of all that we hope for. I trust that what you hope for is to see the Lord, you know, and to know him fully. That was Paul's desire, wasn't it? That I might know him and know him fully. And um, that's because we will not only meet our Lord, but in that instant we will be like him. The Bible says when we see him face to face, we will be like him. But interestingly, the New Testament writers say we can affect the coming of that day, even hasten the coming of the Lord. And we do it in two ways. Live our lives in holiness and godliness. Living our lives before a world in holiness and godliness. This is what, what Peter says following that scripture we just looked at, 2 Peter 3, verse 11 now. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, and here it is, hastening the coming of the day of God? 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So one way we hasten the coming of the Lord is by the way that we live in holiness and godliness before the world. Secondly, it's about preaching the gospel. Jesus in Matthew 24, which if you're familiar with Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end times. Um, the disciples said, what's going to happen at the end? What's going to happen at the end? And one of the things that Jesus said is, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So how do we hasten the coming of the Lord? Uh, we get involved in missions. We support missions. We support Wycliffe Bible translators. That, their role is to translate the Bible into languages that have yet to be committed uh, to, to Scripture. Right? That process has to go on, and the, more it, and the quicker it goes on, the quicker will Jesus return. So that's a motivation for mission, either going yourself or supporting mission. So the question is, are you looking forward to the coming of the Lord? Is that what you're looking forward to? Knowing that you belong to him now and will be part of that glorious company of people who will be united with him forever. That's the question. If you're not sure, you can be sure. Julian, uh, in worship, encouraged people to uh, come and give your life to God today. Don't delay. Right? Don't delay. Yeah. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour so that you will be amongst those who are looking forward to his coming. If you feel you've been challenged about that, you're not sure how you become a Christian, how you give your life to Jesus, then please come and talk to us afterwards. Steve, David, myself or others, we would love to share with you how you can be sure. The Bible says that we can be sure. We can be sure of eternal life because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the mighty work of Jesus there on the cross and what he's done for us. Let's pray.